Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. It's fun to start the morning like that, right? We ended first service with a baptism, and you get to start yours with one. It's a blessing to do those things and just follow the Lord's commands. If you saw that, as Daniel mentioned to you, and you know you haven't followed the Lord in believer's baptism, it's a good time. Find the card that's in the chair in front of you, respond that you'd like to be baptized, follow the Lord in believer's baptism, and turn that in to the welcome table before you leave today. It's good to be with you. It's been about four weeks since we've been together in the Word this way with um, all the interruptions of weather, so I'm excited this morning to be back together with you. Turn in your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 10, start at verse 1, and if you've got little ones and you'd like them to be in Sunday school, there's a concurrent Sunday school for each of the services. They can be dismissed right now, and you can um, pick them up when we're done. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, spiritual warfare, and we're in part four, fleshly weapons, spiritual weapons. preserve our time today, I'd just like to go to our passage and begin by reading through these verses that are going to be our our study this morning. Look at verse 1, if you would. Now I, Paul, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face-to-face with you. Can you advance that, please, Chris? Meek when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. There are many heroic stories of men who captured fortified, elevated, heavenly defended positions, and common to nearly all of them as they came at great personal cost, much like Medal of Honor recipient William F. Leonard, who was from Lockport, New York, born August 9, 1913, Staff Sergeant Leonard, was recognized for his valorous actions while serving as a squad leader with Company C Infantry, 30th Infantry on November 7, 1944, near St. Die, France. Leonard's platoon was reduced to eight men by blistering artillery, mortar, and machine gun and rifle power. Leonard led the survivors in an assault of a tree and shrub-covered hill continuously swept by automatic fire. Killing two snipers at ranges of 50 and 75 yards, he disregarded bullets that pierced his back to engage and destroy a machine gun with rifle grenades, killing its two-man crew. Stunned by an exploding bazooka shell, he continued his relentless advance to knock out a second machine gun and capture the objective. Much the same with then-private first-class Salvador Laura, who was recognized for his valorous actions in Aprilia, Italy, May 27th, and 28th in 1944. During the fight, May 27th, he aggressively led his rifle squad in neutralizing multiple enemy strong points and inflicting large numbers of casualties on the enemy. The next morning, as his company resumed the attack, Laura sustained a severe leg wound but did not stop to receive first aid. Laura continued his exemplary performance until he captured his objective. Both men received the Medal of Honor and Bronze Star, and Laura received Purple Heart. I've introduced this new section of this powerful letter by pointing out the obvious that this section where Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit is a document that helps us understand the reality of spiritual warfare. And we understand the language here because we understand the stories like the ones I just related to. The high points, heavily guarded 
fortified positions. We understand all of that. And so we also noted in our introduction that, uh, to these four remaining chapters that Paul is dealing with a remnant of troublemakers. It includes some rebels, some false teachers. They're always identified by their actions. Those are the ones that gossip, the discord sores, critical spirits. These are the fruit of the minority that still remain in the church. They continue to resist Paul's authority and his teaching and his guidance. And so in this final section, Paul begins to operate, if you will, in enemy territory. And although he is humble, gentle, and he's meek, he gives a very firm, direct, pointed warning to those who remain in this hostile camp. All this is given to us to help us. It's not advancing, Chris. All this is given to us to help us have the understanding, the fortitude, and the capability to make it through the inevitable spiritual battles that are part of the believer's life on earth. We've marked the examples from Paul. We've given some handholds to the passage, and so we'll look at those just in the order he revealed them, because if the Lord gave us this teaching, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's one of the reasons why we get biblical teaching, especially in the epistles, is that we can know how we're supposed to act. And so we understand if we follow Paul like Paul followed Christ, then we, are, uh, we can take these illustrations as examples of how we're supposed to interact with these situations. We saw the first three steps in dealing with spiritual warfare came from Paul's attitude. When it comes to uh, spiritual warfare, whether it's with people or in the spiritual realm or circumstances, Paul said, I beg you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so we see as he begins a section, an attitude of humility. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is manifested, which are meekness and gentleness. Paul knew his master well enough to know that this is how he expected Paul to start. And then he really begins to address this issue at hand, and Paul repeats their own words to them. And he says to them, he says, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. Paul isn't bearing a grudge. He, he isn't displaying his hurt feelings. He just comes and uses their own words and says, I know this is what you're saying. And he helps them understand that uh, they were misunderstanding his compassion when he was there with them. They're misunderstanding his hesitancy to chase everything down, to chase every individual down when he's there with them. And they're just pointing out then as they misunderstood that, that oh, Paul is really powerful when he's far away from us and, and can't feel our own uh, retort. But when he's close to us, he's just weak and ineffective. And so very disrespectful to Paul. So he's dealing with that attitude with some in the church and he deals with these issues of spiritual warfare very carefully, and he gives them a warning in verse 2, and he says this. He says, I ask that when I'm present, that I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So I come to you without anger, without malice. I come to you patiently, but I also come to you. And we saw this instruction number four that helps us win in spiritual warfare, and it's the character trait of courage. When all Attempts at leniency have been exhausted when forbearance is exhausted, when all the efforts of patience are eliminated, and, and when the only thing left is to really protect the truth and the church from gossips and slanders, he's going to do that. And that's the whole idea of the middle part of the verse. I need not be bold with the confidence, he says, with which I propose to be courageous against some. And Paul says, I have the boldness. We saw that was warmness of words. Paul's blood is not running cold. He's not dreading this whole thing. And I have confidence. That's the word for conviction. He has this inner assurance that when he comes and he does what he's supposed to do, the Lord has prepared him appropriately for the ministry. That's before him, even the hard parts. And so both the words together let his readers know that he is prepared for whatever comes along. And, he, and in those things, uh, he has supplied his courage. And so he says, I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. This is the nature of the most trouble, most of the trouble in the church. It's just some, it's not everybody. 
It's a small minority, Paul knows this, who keep hanging on to a toxic current, and that current is that Paul lives like the world. He responds like the world. He is like the world. They say he's worldly. He's not godly. And so verse 3, Paul gives the answer. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul kind of switches it around. He says, I'm not worldly, but I do still walk in my fleshly body. We don't war, though, he says, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction, he says, of fortresses. Paul has gone into spiritual battle before, and he has taught others to do it. But he doesn't come with the worldly arsenal or for worldly motives. He isn't in there for the glory. Paul brings humility. He brings meekness. He brings gentleness to the spiritual battle. And those are important. And then he brings courage. And you can't be an effective soldier if you don't have it. And we saw that in, in those things we just read just a moment ago. But we saw in those things that work in conjunction then, verse, uh, instruction number five with spiritual warfare is capability. So he has courage and he has capability. Some things have to be corrected. Because without correcting them, the entire ministry suffers over and over. And we saw some examples in Paul's counsel to Titus and Timothy, and won't go through those again. But capability just means this, and you can see this in your notes. Capability means you just you have the weapons, and you have to have the ability, and you have to know who the enemy is. And he knew he had to have courage. He knew he had to understand who the enemy was. And when there's trouble in the church, it's always the work of the enemy. When there's trouble in the culture, it's always the work of the enemy. Uh, he's, he's at work fooling people, telling people lies. They believe them. He's working the church to thwart the gospel, to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, to derail sanctification, to break the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's always about that. He does it in numerous different ways. Paul knows who that enemy is. He knows he's striving against unseen power, and he's availed himself of what he describes in Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 as the whole armor of God. And we looked at all of that. Now, Paul says, uh, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We saw that, that word warfare is the noun stratia, which is uh, where we get our word strategy, and it isn't fleshly. It's not matching wits to see who's smarter, Paul says. I'm not coming to, uh, to see if I can be smarter than you. I'm, com- I'm, I'm not comparing preferences with you as if yours are all equal. He goes, I'm just coming to you, Paul says, with spiritual weapons we see listed for us in Ephesians 6, 12 through 13, and with the authority that we saw delineated to Paul and to those who are elders in the church in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I have the right to come. I have the right to say this. I have the right to, to address it, Paul says, and I'm going to do that very thing. Now, let's look at where the warfare, warfare is, is focused. It says, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That first word, destruction, we're going to see two times. It's the noun katharesis. It means to tear down, to, to dismantle something completely. So Paul says in this warfare, uh, what's the first thing that has to be destroyed? Well, the first word there is fortresses. Okoruma can be translated in terms of function uh, as a place of protection or a place to defend yourself. It can be translated in terms of construction, like a bulwark or a barrier or someplace with strong walls. I think both of those translations work well because I think it's being used here as a simile, as a figure of speech. Uh, powerful weapons to destroy false arguments. That's the idea. The fortress here is a place where worldly people run to defend their preferences and their wrong attitudes. That's what it is. Even in the church, worldly people in the church, those who resist Paul's authority in the world, this is a place where worldly people run and they defend their preferences and their wrong attitudes and it looks strong and it looks intimidating and this is what Paul is uh, illustrating for us. And we looked before at military siege tactics of the period, which demanded that a city, after it was conquered, would have its walls pulled down. We certainly see examples of that from Roman history. You see it from Josephus and Judas Maccabeus. 
We know it from Babylon. Remember when Babylon conquered Judah, after they were done conquering, they pulled down huge sections of the wall so they couldn't defend themselves anymore. And so we saw that just a few minutes ago, men were, who were successful in accomplishing their objectives in World War II, so by destroying the fortified points of, of whatever it was, that location that they were assigned. And so we understand this language, and Paul's carried along to use this language, uh, waging war and weapons and destruction of fortresses, and later he's going to use high places to let us know how serious this issue is of spiritual warfare and the job that we have before us in the culture and certainly inside the church. Man's hostility to the things of God is so intense and it's so ingrained, the self-justification of even the contentious in the church is so deep-rooted and so entranced and so pervasive that they feel secure behind what they imagine to be impregnable bulwarks of self-justification, of rebelliousness, of, of unbelief. So Paul has to use this language. And, and men and women hide behind thoughts and imaginations that are the bastions of this age. I look at the verse part of verse 5. It makes it very clear. We are destroying, he says, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're destroying the same word then that we just saw just a minute ago. Uh, that word katharesis. We're dismantling it. And then what are we dismantling? Well, speculations first. That's the word legismos. just means the way people think, the way people talk. Uh, so thoughts, ideas, opinions, reasonings, philosophies, theories, ideologies, religions, and on and on and on. And, and those things are the fortifications in which men hide. So they've laid all that up. They've raised up these high places and protecting their own thoughts. And those are the fortifications that men, where men place themselves, ideological bulwarks, ph- philosophical ones. And in their strongholds, they try to hide and protect themselves from God and from his word or from the gospel, or from morality, or from spiritual authority, which is Paul's issue here. It's also uh, every lofty thing, and so that's the, the noun hupsoma. It actually used to describe a mountain. Anything uh, definitely termed a height, uh, like Leonard and Lara both had to attack uh, in France and Italy. It's used here again as a figure of speech, an exaggerated evaluation of who someone might think they are, or what they've done, or what they know. Just all High places that please will place themselves. Well, I, I'm here because I have this education. Oh, I, I hold this opinion because of what I've done. I hold this opinion because of who I think I am, and I know who I am. And, and it's all qualified as spiritual warfare because it, all of it has one thing in common. All of it is what? Raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what a speculation is. And he defines it right here in Instruction 6. That helps us when spiritual warfare, it's related to capability, and it includes the tearing down of strongholds. So the idea of dismantling every concept, every opinion, every reason, every philosophy, every theory, every ideology, every thought, every evaluation, who they think they are, what they think they've done, what they think they know, all that, raised up against God, it's a fortress, that's a stronghold. And, and they get very tough. And they're certainly very powerful, every one of them. All the anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-ultimate authority, fortresses and strongholds, all of that is a lofty thing, a speculation that has to come down. That's Paul's point. And I, don't, I know I don't need to point this out to most of you, but these kinds of things, lofty thoughts and speculations raised up against the knowledge of God are many times in place in those who are in places of authority. We can certainly see that uh, now in our courts, in our governments, in our universities. And one of these high places in speculation, I told you this before, that are raised up and fortified, as we saw, is the high place of atheistic naturalism. Nature is all there is. And that is informing, it's the unquestioned authority, that's informing every decision. It's informing every decision about, about climate. Be clear. 
atheistic naturalism is informing every, every single decision about climate. That the world is all there is, and we're here wrecking it, and so we have to do something to save it. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? The Bible teaches us that we have seasons and, it's going to esta- and they're established, that we have oceans and they stay where they're going to be. And the Lord has established the strong, uh, all the storehouses of everything and he's in charge of everything. And summer, winter, springtime, and harvest will continue, right? But from naturalistic atheism, we inform ourselves that we're all there is and we're wrecking everything and, and we can impact all this and so we make all these decisions. It's the same with gender. Atheistic naturalism. You are yourself. Your truth is good for you. If you want to be a female, you be a female. If you want to be a male, you be a male. If you want to switch back and forth, go ahead. Because you're all there is. See? And you can make that decision. And you can just add in all the other stuff and pile it on. Okay? And it makes its way in the church too. And people hold those opinions in the church when they should know better. And they should know what the Word of God says. And yet they'll come into the church with that kind of opinion. And with other stuff too. Anti-authority, anti-Bible, all that kind of stuff makes it way in the church. And that's what Paul's point is, of course, and that's why he's bringing it up. But it has a great, much broader application. And, of course, then when you get that point, then anyone who believes in the God of the Bible and in the gospel, they're irrational and they're dangerous. Here it is to freedom. That's what we hear now. And they're anti-science and must not be allowed to have any influence, influence in public discourse. That's, that's where we are, see? So then God has no place in public life, and God has no place in education, God has no place in government, in social policy, environmental policy, law, courts, uh, determining morality, and, and on and on. So, of course, this rejection of God is thought to be intellectual. It's scientific, they think, and freedom-loving. That's what uh, they think it really is. It, but really, it's the bulwark of the love of sin. It's the Tower of Fools, and those thoughts and those imaginations are in the church too. And obviously, Paul is, because Paul is saying these things to the Corinthian church, it's in the church. Anytime God's authority is substituted, or God's thoughts, or God's conclusions, or his instruction, or, or his dominion over the world and its systems and its order, and, and, and that all that's substituted or for conclusions based on atheistic naturalism, or, or God's thoughts are secondary to, hu- secondary to human thought, that's speculation that leads to fortresses and high places and every lofty thing. See? So it has a, a real broad application. All, where, all spiritual warfare is aimed at smashing those fortresses of human reasoning against God. They don't come down easily in the mind, in the church, in the world around us. You don't play games on the surface with them. You don't fight worldly philosophy and nihilism and worldly philo- with worldly philosophy. Paul says you need some powerful weapons. The last part of verse 5. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not only does he say that you have to take down strongholds in every place people try to secure themselves over and against the knowledge of God, but also taking every thought captive. See, And the word is just like it sounds. Instruction 7, it helps us win the spiritual warfare. Again, it's related to capability. It's a military term for taking prisoners. That's exactly what it is. And the word has just as much application, beloved, in your personal thought life and in the sin issues that plague you in the spiritual warfare uh, through the flesh, like telling yourselves that your sin isn't a big deal, that God doesn't evaluate it very highly, that's not a big deal, it doesn't matter, or that God doesn't care about your stubbornness or, or allowing our thoughts to carry us down the depression road, those thoughts can be taken captive too. Many times when I speak with men and women about thought life and about plaguing things that, uh, issues that are in their life, this is a passage I use. Because most of the time they think, I'm helpless against all of this stuff. And I would say the opposite. I would say you're not helpless by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can take these thoughts captive. When they come up, you recognize them. You say, no, that's raised up against the knowledge of who God thinks I am and who he said that I am. And he gave his son for me. And he's established me. And I know that even in difficult times that he's perfecting me. That's the truth. And so it takes captive then the falsehood that makes its way into your life. 
So it's taking prisoners and it has a lot of application. And, and it has that application in your own life. It has application with individuals in the church who resisted Paul's leadership. As, and it has application in the bastions of academia and of government and wherever deceptive philosophies reign. And here it is, in prideful arrogance. The effort is to capture all these falsities, all these thoughts, personal, public, as prisoners. And by the way, that little phrase is important to the obedience of Christ. That's a synonym for salvation. Obedience to the faith. See, those are used in parallel. Obedience always is the mark of true salvation. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? Whoever hears my word and does it is my disciple. Obedience always is the mark of salvation. We're bringing people out of those fortified refuges of lies and bringing them under Jesus. That's really what you want. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, the great conqueror takes captives and installs them into his service. We're not tearing down foundations and bastions and towers to make them feel badly. See, we do that a lot in social media, right? Christians do that, and I read that, and I kind of wonder how many people are going to be won over to Christ at the end of that tirade. You're arguing because you want to make them look stupid, not because you want to bring them under the obedience of Christ. There's a big difference between the two. You can give the truth without being offensive. See, and, and so we, we don't want to make them feel bad. We're not trying to show them that we're smarter. We see that a lot, too. We're doing it to see them come to faith, and regardless of the application, there's only one way to destroy error. How are thoughts and pride and error that turn into strongholds, which gets lifted up and become bastions of humanism, uh, that will eventually be a mausoleum for them thrown down? They're thrown down with the truth. And that was instruction number eight. It helps us with win spiritual warfare. And again, it's related to capability. You have to be equipped with the truth, beloved. And I can't express this uh, with more, more emphatically than I'm trying to do it now. When you look at Ephesians 6 and you see this Christian soldier, and that's you, by the way, and, and you see him equipped with all of his clothing, and then it says he has one weapon, Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God is the truth. You've got to be equipped with it. You don't fight spiritual warfare with weapons of the world. The best arguer doesn't take captives to the obedience of Christ. Spiritual warfare that you fight is a warfare that's fought at the level of the heart because that's, that's, that's where the veil is. They can't understand the truth. It's foolishness to them. The veil is there. They've established this high place that they defend vehemently in their lives, and they don't realize that they're taken captive by lies. You're the one who has to show them the truth, see? When you find people entrenched and feeling secure in this great fortress of the worldly ideas, you have to bring the truth to bear on those bulwarks. According to Paul, that's the only thing that can throw them down. So here's the thing. Do you want to fight a spiritual war? Then learn the scriptures which will help you identify error. Learn how to confront the error with the truth. And I'm talking about reasoning the truth out of the Scripture, see. People are so quick today to, when they're confronted with a clear passage of Scripture, to say, well, thank you for your opinion. That's the flavor of the month. I, I've had that happen to me I don't know how many times. I'll give a reason the truth out of the Scripture, apply it to a situation in their life, and they'll come back and say, well, thank you for your opinion. And I'm just saying, you know, I didn't give you my opinion, actually. I, I could have given you my opinion on your life and what I think your choices are going to lead to. All I did was show you that your choices were wrong. Thank you for your opinion. As if that's going to somehow disarm the messenger, see. You know, you've got to confront them with a clear passage of Scripture. You've got to reason the truth out of the Scripture. That's why we say all the time in our Sunday schools and in our Bible studies, yeah, particularly as it's not enough to teach a child 
a story from the Bible. A child can go from pre-K through high school and on into college learning the stories of the Bible and walk right out into the world and never look back because they never learned why the story was there. As our boys were growing up, you teach the Bible story. Now, why is that story important? Why is it important to teach Zacchaeus? Why is, it, why is it important to teach about Noah's Ark? Listen, there are principles there that you need to reason out, truths about God's, God's faithfulness and his nature, and that needs to be clear to your children. This is why it was captured in the scripture and preserved for you. See, that's called reasoning the truth out of God's words, being able to give the truth clearly, see, because that's the only way you can throw in that error. You've got to know what God thinks and why he thinks it and where that's stated. God can take then that truth and blow up the stronghold and the bulwark of foolishness anytime he's ready. You just have to brandish the weapon and God's going to use it, see. It's not going to be you and in your power. In fact, the less power that you have personally, the better you're going to be able to wield the sword so that God can use it for effectiveness. Your oratorical ability, your reasoning ability, your defending of, the, uh, of whatever. See, that's not what God wants. God wants your submission to him, knowing what his word says, and believing that's the ultimate truth, and then you wield that and continually wield that, see? And I've seen this happen over and over again. Error falls only by the truth. And it may take a while for you to give the truth and then for the error to fall, see? Rebellion ends when truth prevails, and that's what we do. See, we preach the truth, we teach the truth, we write the truth, we proclaim the truth wherever you are, and only the word of God can smash the lies. If you're going to be out there in a spiritual war, you're going to need to be armed. You're going to need to know the word, see? And boy, Paul was fearsome when it came to that. He knew what the Word of God said. You don't fight the battle on their level. Only the Word of God can smash the lies. That's the power of God, see. Remember when we studied 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 17? Turn there if you would, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. And hold your finger here. We'll be back in just a minute, and then we'll begin to start to wrap up this section. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. So right to the first part of that letter, 17 verses in. Paul's talking about baptizing, and people are like, did you baptize me or that guy or whatever? Paul, I don't remember who I baptized, um, but Jesus didn't send me to baptize, he says in verse 17, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, if I'm trying to be a clever human, I'll take all the power out of the word of God. That's the idea. I'm trying to be some clever orator, then your power, uh, your your confidence is going to be in me and that's a no confidence instead of God now look at the rest of it look at verse 18 Paul makes a very clear statement for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing so in other words when you ban- when you uh, brandishing the truth it's going to be foolishness to those you're brandishing it to of course and they're in a stronghold that they think is impenetrable and they think that they're uh, they have the high ground on you and the moral ground and the scientific ground or whatever it is, it's all foolishness, but they think they have it. And so your clear teaching of that is going to be considered foolish. But to us who are, belie- are being saved, it's the power of God. We understand that the entire power of God is wrapped up in the gospel. That's considerable, isn't it? Verse, 10, verse 19, rather. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. There's, there's our words, right? I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? So where are the worldly philosophers? Where are the atheistic naturalists? Where are the worldly attorneys who think they have all the answers? Has not God, he says, made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer to that is yes, he has. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. It wasn't possible for them to reason it out. They didn't come to that conclusion on their own. Uh, it wasn't possible for them to understand it, and that's in the wisdom of God. They're not going to figure it out on their own, but they're going to throw a lot of bulwark up and a lot of towers and high places that seem impregnable, but they are not. God was well pleased, look at it, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So they are led captive to the obedience of Christ by what is foolish even to need, which is what? Considering how God's revealed himself, preaching. So the fact that we have to say it and preach it is the foolishness that God says he's used to disarm the world and take down the strongholds. It should be obvious. It's not obvious. Instead, in its place, as we saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, people were in their own imaginations in the dark, imagined themselves all other kinds of things. But God's going to disarm all of that. Now look at verse 25. Skip down from uh, that last verse, verse 21 to 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. And that should be a great encouragement to you, beloved. When you, uh, when you know the truth, you're able to, to, to discern it. You're able to perk it out of the Scripture. Uh, things that God thinks are foolish and silly are wiser than men's wisdom. And things that God thinks are fragile and vulnerable are still stronger than the strength of men. That's his evaluation of those who don't know Christ. And so as, as his follower, as his soldier, you can have that evaluation too. You can understand that even though it looks impregnable, even though the foolishness looks uh, widespread and it's a large fortress, uh, those things are foolish and those things uh, are fragile. Then he illustrates the point, look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, look around you, says Paul. Um, God disdains human wisdom, its folly, and human strength, its weakness. He chooses to save the lowly. See, and, and we, we have this idea all the time that it would really be really cool if this certain sports figure or this guy in Hollywood or this music person could come to faith. See, God doesn't pick many of those people. And when he does pick a few of them, most of the time what happens? They begin with their 2.7 million Twitter followers to expound the word of God, which they don't know yet and haven't been discipled, nor have they been uh, encouraged to grow up in the word. And then they just lead a whole bunch of other people astray. God hasn't chosen to do the world that way and bring the truth to the world that way. He chooses those who aren't those things, see? He chooses to save the lowly. He doesn't call the salvation many of whom the world would say are mighty, noble, or wise, uh, so that when they speak the word and it smashes fortresses and brings down bulwarks, who gets the praise? See, if it's the foolish, if it's the ones who are meek, it's the ones who are low, and then it's not in their own power. They just know what the word of God says and they speak it. Then he confounds the wisdom of the wise with foolishness, right? What they would consider foolishness and weak people. God gets the praise. That's who's supposed to get it all along, right? Paul says, I don't want to give you a clever sermon that gets people to make some profession of faith in Christ because of the cleverness of my sermon. I want to hit them with the word of God and let it do its real work, see? Now look back at verse 6. Flip back to 2 Corinthians 10, 6. We're going to wrap up. He says in verse 6, and we are ready. So he says all of those things. He's all prepared. He's capable. He has all the equipment that he needs. He's got courage. We're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And that's instruction nine. You can write that down if you need it. That helps to win spiritual warfare. And again, it's related to capability. You have to know when to deliver the blow. Timing is everything. A teachable moment. That's everything. See. Mark this. You're prepared, and the Lord provides the opportunity. It's always that way, right? It's that way with witnessing. It's that way with brandishing the truth. You're prepared. The Lord provides the opportunities. Maybe it's going to be a season of the soul. What's that mean? Maybe, maybe somebody in their family or in their circle dies. Or maybe there's a sickness. 
or maybe it's a disappointment, an unexpected situation. Any number of things which put them in a position where they look around at this supposed fortress that they've, they've uh, established, this high ground that they're on, and they realize it's so shaky, it's so vulnerable, and then you speak the truth. So you're ready, the Lord provides the opportunity, and then can deliver the blow in power. So Paul says, we're ready. So he's trained, he's courageous, he's capable, he has the weapons, he has the ability, he knows who the ultimate enemy is, he's prepared, and the delay then that they just criticize, has nothing to do with cowardice and weakness and everything to do with he's waiting until the right moment, see? So he says, we are ready, then he says this word, to punish. We're ready to punish. That's the word, ektagao, aorist, active, infinitive. And it, it can be translated to vindicate one's right, to do justice. And in the infinitive, it's not limited to a single point or a single time or a single person. It's going to be equally applied whenever the time is right. So we're ready, we're equipped, wherever the Lord wants to use that equipment. When you've distilled the truth from the Word of God, you begin, you're in it every day anyway, and you're faithfully applying it to your life, and you're understanding what it says, and you are ready then to punish. And it, it could be stated ready to avenge. And it's a direct threat to those who know they are to be obedient to Christ, but refuse to do it, both in the church, outside the church, see. And, and we're not used to hearing this, are we? We're not used to hearing that kind of language. Maybe it strikes our ears and we feel a little uncomfortable with the language. You know, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, to be ready to avenge, to be ready to, you know, to um, vindicate it. Well, could I say that that may be revealing of a lackadaisical attitude towards conflict and rebellion or contention in the body? Do you don't think that's a big deal? And God does? Uh, maybe it's a lackadaisical attitude towards the foolishness that's in the world? Or maybe you've bought into some of it thinking that somehow gets you, gets you moral high ground. You're posturing somehow. Listen, the Lord's not in any of that, okay? Anything that's raised up against the knowledge of him, he doesn't like it. And he's equipped you to be able to deliver the blow. And you have to be ready, as Paul is. And, and this, you know, thinking that's striking your ear is, you know, be ready to vindicate one's right, be ready to do justice, be ready to avenge. You know, Paul received his information from Christ, so it's actually very Christ-like. That's precisely what he wants you to do in meekness and gentleness and humility. Be ready. And in Paul's case, when they've entrenched and, and they've dug their heels in in the church and they won't respond and they won't repent and they keep on tearing down the church and keep up the false narrative uh, going against Paul, he's not going to let them kick the ministry to pieces every time they feel like it. He's all done with that. And he has had to act before and then he's prepared now to act again. And they've misunderstood his hesitancy why is he waited? Look at the last part of verse 6. We're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That seems confusing, but I think we can clear it up. In other words, he's talking to the obedient part of the church. Obviously, the few that he's targeting are not obedient. This is the problem. They've raised up this bulwark against the knowledge of God and the authority of God and, and through, through Paul. So he's talking to the obedient part of the church. So catch that. Everyone who's true to the gospel, everyone who's agreed to submit to Paul's leadership, those who have taken up the mission of the church and give themselves to it, uh, they're tired of the same old narrative, watching a few, some we saw earlier, uh, cause damage to the church over and over by gossip and slander and all of that, and they've taken their stand. And when that happens, then it's going to be clear who the remainder are, see? The troublemakers, those who take, uh, who've been taken captive temporarily to do the will of Satan. The contentious ones. It's going to be made clear who they are. Because when the church starts to do that, when members begin to do the one another to one another, 
to reprove each other and to correct each other and, and correct the sin that's in, in the other person's life, and, and they don't participate in the nonsense anymore, that's when the church is in the right position to move in the power of the Spirit and be able to really be the church, see? And Paul says, then, then we're ready, and then that's the right timing to deliver the blow. It won't be a, a season of the soul here. It's just the rest of the church being obedient, and it's going to get real uncomfortable for the troublemakers. That's what Paul's intending. We're going to punish this disobedience when your obedience is complete. When, when you can see the church has come alongside, and they've said, yeah, Paul, uh, we're going to do this. The rest of them who set their heels against Paul will be obvious, and then he's going to deliver the blow. So he's going to wait until that becomes really clear. Who among the Corinthians would submit to the truth and who would finally reject it kind of in a fixed posture. You know, they're not, I'm not going to do it. And when he, say, when he, he says, when I come, I'm going to do battle with them and I'm going to force them to surrender or to accept their towers to one way or another. What timing and very, very clear, isn't it? So Paul's a good soldier. Good soldiers don't open fire on everyone, do they? He's ready. He's told them what's going to happen. So how they're supposed to act. We've had, we've had, they've had four letters. It's a fourth. We've had two. We certainly see how that's supposed to line up, right? And what that's supposed to look like in individuals. What their attitude's supposed to be both towards him and towards the Lord and how they were supposed to respond. So he's not firing on everybody. He's humble. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's gentle with those who respond. For the rest, he's courageous and he's competent. And he knows who the enemy really is. And he says, you better be ready. And so that really is the intro to this section of four, cha- uh, four chapters that are going to really help us understand how you deal with this kind of difficulty and trouble inside the church. And so Paul's laid it out for us, and I think you know where we're headed. You can read ahead, of course, and that'll help you understand what we're going to see and uh, just see a lot of more of this, very, very carefully worded. Paul wants to go about this in the right way. He wants to be pleasing to his master, but he's not going to be, uh, he's not a wimp, and he's never been one. Just being long-suffering and making sure that the church is coming alongside and the ones who are going to will, and then he'll bring the difficult uh, ones to bear. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Pick up right here, Lord willing, next time and be able to dig right in in verse 7. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. We're so grateful today for the ministry of the Word. We're grateful for the ministry of, of music and for the giving and for the fellowship and for the encouragement and for baptisms and, and all of those things that are just simple church, things your church has been doing for 2,000 years, that we can just be a part of that. And we're grateful that you're at work through your Holy Spirit here Lord, I pray that you continue to do your work. Help us not to get in that way, just to know what your word says, what it means by what it says, and then help us to do it. Help us to do that individually. Help us to do that corporately. Guide us in each day as we're going to be in your word so we're not starving on Sunday. Lord, I pray that as we go out from here, we'll be quick to do our purposes, which are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbor as ourself, and then to preach the gospel to all creatures, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus said. really simplifies the purposes of our life and our mission. Of course, we, we, have, to, we have to be at school. We have, to, we have to make a living. We have to do all those things. We, you know that. You know that what we need. You know that um, we are needy people. We're made of clay, but you've also given us jobs to do, and here we, we see that enhanced as we understand that we are to be able to discern and perk out the truths of the Word of God and be able to bring them to bear one another, with our own thought life, with those in the church, those in the culture, and I pray you'll, wherever our influence is, wherever you've placed us, we'll be able to speak the truth in love and humility, meekness, gentleness, but with firmness. And Lord, as we're prepared, 
and you'll be the one who can show us where the bows to strike in the proper time. And, uh, we know not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be delivered from the knowledge of foolishness and from the high tower uh, of, of rebellion. But, Lord, the ones you bring into our life, we certainly want to be those who shine the truth there. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.